1: Sports fans, thanks to you, this podcast is now in the top 10 in iTunes. And let's not stop there. Let's get it to the top five. If you like what you hear, rate and review us. And if you follow me on Twitter, you know how much I love feedback and respond to almost every mention. So let's get the conversation going. You in? Why do college upperclassmen get penalized in the NBA draft? What are the key ingredients that make up a basketball coach? And what's the deal with Grayson Allen? The only question left is say it with me, you win. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today, I am extremely excited <laughs> to bring on the show Seth Davis, who is a senior writer for CBS. Sports Illustrated, and Campus Insiders, and also is a color guy on TV for the Big Ten Network. So, Seth, uh, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, I can't can't tell you how much I appreciate it. My pleasure,
0: Coach Nick. You're a fun follower on Twitter. I always uh, learn something, so I expect to learn something here. The the pressure's on you right now, not Uh-oh. me.
1: All right. Well, It's, I guess it's a full-court press. Uh, you can zone in college, so <laughs> I'll have to try and keep my, the ball moving. Um I thought we could start out by talking a little bit about, um, you know, you're you're covering college, and there are, I don't know, like 300 Division One schools, and I'm just kind of curious, how the heck are you supposed to keep all that straight in your head?
0: Not easy, but it's not easy to keep most of my uh, life straight in my head. I mean, on top of everything else, I have uh, a family with, you know, three sons, and we just got a dog, so it's a, <laughs> a lot to keep straight. It's a lot to stay on top of. I mean, a lot of it, Nick... Um, You know, you try to stay on top of everything. Of course, you can't possibly be on top of every single thing. But, you know, it it depends on, you know, what I'm doing at that time. You know, if I'm writing like this week, I wrote a story on Justin Patton, the freshman center at Mm -hmm. Creighton. So for a few days, I made myself an expert on Justin Patton. When I'm in the studio, I have, you know, tons of games that I can watch. I've got great research people. I've got, you know, the laptop, the iPad, the phone, the Twitter. So I'm able to, like I say, kind of monitor everything. But then when I really need something, I kind of know the places to go dive. So I'm just kind of collecting bits and nuggets as I go. And, you know, and, and listen, I'm getting I'm getting paid to watch basketball. I mean, it, it never it certainly never feels like certainly never feels like work.
1: Well, you know, it's funny because we do the NBA over here, and around the NCAA tournament, I always try and catch up on what I've missed. And I spend like five days where my eyes start bleeding trying to watch as much college as I can. And I'm just kind of curious if you feel this way, because the biggest thing I take away from watching a ton of college like in a very short period of time is how bad the refereeing is. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: well, you know, it's for you and Jeff Van Gundy, I guess. Um, it's, it's kind of fun,
0: it's kind of funny to say that because I'm the opposite with the NBA. Like, I'm really into the NBA when it starts off, and then as you can imagine, once college starts, it's locked in. And the timing for me is is always great because just as the tournament ends, it's like the last week of the regular season in the NBA, and the playoffs are are a lot of fun. So. I kind of come at it the opposite way. And I I, got to tell you, first of all, you know, the wrestling in the NBA should be better because there's fewer teams, fewer games, uh, and they have a professional national staff that is very centralized. So just the sheer numbers that you're dealing with in college, um, you know, you're just, like you you said, it's 30 teams versus 350. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of what you're seeing. Also, you know, it's, you know, I think it's pretty subjective, better or worse, you know, it's a different kind of. Of game, different kind of refereeing sometimes, so different things get emphasized. But yeah, I got to tell you, uh, Nick, you know when I'm watching the NBA, i watching the NBA playoffs. I hear a lot of complaining about NBA referees. <laughs> I mean, I mean, who who complains more? Like, I remember, uh, you know, I don't know, if you heard on, on Christmas Day one of the games, you know, Jeff Van Gundy made that comment. He said, "Well, you know, if you ever watch a college game, you'd never complain about NBA referees again." I'm like. Oh really Jeff you're not going to complain about NBA referees again like who complains more than you about NBA referees so but it's a, it's a really really hard job and um Thing we know is that no matter what happens, the team that loses, their fans are not going to be happy with the refs.
1: Fair enough, and, and I think I, I like your point, which is that be, because of the sheer volume, there just simply is that many more referees, that many more different styles, and so you know it is all over the place. I feel like I, I'm not always happy with the NBA refs either. Uh, the FIBA refs. I don't know if you ever get a chance to watch FIBA, but or even the Euro League stuff, but. I always feel like when I watch them, they seem to understand it the best. It's particularly when you have like the flopping stuff uh, and, and that kind of thing. They, and maybe it's a soccer thing, but they, they seem to really understand how to control the game a lot better than than the rest in America.
0: You know, possibly. And I mean, again, I think a lot of that, Nick, is just it, – it's a European game is a different game. I mean, I think in a, in a lot of respects what they do over there um, is better than what we do over here in, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, just as an example – um, I would love to see college basketball do the FIBA rule, where you can, where there's there's no such thing as offensive goaltending. Mm. Uh, it's, an, it's an exciting play. It, it it showcases athleticism. It doesn't come up that often. Ball's over the cylinder, and, and you can go get it and flush it through. You know, I think it's a pretty exciting play. Um, you know, the other thing that FIBA does which I really, I mean, I'm gonna crusade about this one is the way they they don't have live ball timeouts. You know, uh, you know, if Tom if Tom Brady goes back to pass and he's about to get sacked, does he get to call timeout and not get sacked? Um, so I never, I never like that. I think, I mean, I don't like timeouts in general because I think um, you know coaches at, at all levels are way too controlling and it slows down the game and nothing gets accomplished and blah blah blah. But one thing I would really like to get rid of is live ball timeouts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, are you in favor of advancing the ball to half court after a timeout?
0: A- absolutely not. I think it's a cheap gimmick. That's fine (laughs) real estate. If Ty said can go down the court in a couple of seconds and make a layup, then uh, Danny Ainge can do it. Um, That is precious real estate. It's a cheap gimmick. I don't like it. I'm sure you do.
1: Uh, well, you know, it, it kind of, it just changes the whole way you look at it. As I was a high school coach and it never was a consideration like, oh, I can call a timeout in advance. Like the timeouts meant a lot, to something different than they do in the NBA. I, I kind of like it. Um, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing it. By the way, the, whenever I see Tyus Edney, I always, I can't, I just say to him, I can't believe that you were able to get any of your shots off. At your height, because I I'm like four inches taller than him, and I'm short, <laughs> and I don't believe he was able to yeah. do that. I mean, you were. Did you see that yeah. live? Were you around when he did that at the end of the game?
0: Uh, no, I certainly. I, I didn't. I did not see that live, but I, I know Tyus a little bit because he's on staff out of UCLA where yeah. I live. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what, whatever he does to his life, that's going to be the first sentence of his obituary.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, when I, I met Mark Price, all these little guys, when they come around those screens and get knocked knock down those shots, I just, I marvel at that, um, at, at even Division One level and then higher, because those guys, you know, those defenders are tall, uh, and it, it just always, it just blows me away whenever I hear and think about it, uh, how they do that. Did you ever play when you were younger? Uh, yeah, but
0: not in any kind of, I mean, I was a pickup guy. I got cut from my high school team and I, I still have not forgiven the, the, the high school coach for that. So oh. if he's, if he's listening, if he's listening right now, F you, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, but no, no, I didn't. Uh, I mean, I was, I was a decent pickup player. I could, I could show up in, you know, open gyms, which I always did. Um, and not, and not embarrass myself. So, okay. so um, you know, enough. if you can't, if you can't, if, if you can't do it, then you're right. That's usually how it works.
1: Well, you know, while we're on the subject, you know, you have all this knowledge on the bass on the game, and the way you feel, in like you, your writing is always so uh, detailed. Like, where did you? Where is the background of your basketball knowledge coming from?
0: You know what? Well, first of all, you know, I, I was just a, I grew up a huge sports fan. I grew up in the D.C. area, mm-hmm. um, and the, the Redskins were everything. That was the heyday of the Joe Gibbs, you know, Joe Biden, John Reagan's era. Um, and our, you know, we had season tickets at RFK Stadium, so that was really my first love. I was always a big sports fan, um, but I, I think the most important thing that happened was I got rejected by the Ivy League schools that I applied to, which which meant that I ended up at Duke, which in those days is where you went when you got rejected by the Ivies. Now it's it's as hard to get into as any Ivy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, my four years at Duke, Nick. Well, first of all, I always knew that I wanted to be a sports catcher and writer, so I, I I was already in that direction. Okay. And my four years at Duke, I graduated in 1992. My four years at Duke, the basketball team went to four Final Fours. They played in three championship games and they won it twice. And I knew all those guys. Still know all those guys. Um, so I got the college basketball bug, um, and just kind of just kind of stayed with it. And you know. It's interesting now because I'm casting a role both in the studio and on these games at Big Ten Network that is usually assigned to, you know, players and coaches. And, you know, and while I don't claim to have the depth of intricate knowledge as a lot of these guys, and certainly the perspective of, of a player, I mean, we all bring our perspective, at the end of the day, it ain't freaking rocket science. And, I've, you know, I've now got – I've got, I've got, a, I've got a, literally a quarter century – um, I say it makes me sound old, which I am, but a quarter century of not only watching basketball, but, and a lot of basketball, but, but talking and spending time with the most brilliant basketball minds who ever lived. So I can sit. I mean, I remember when I was at Sports Illustrated, I watched, because Tom Izzo is the best for access, and I was just starting to get Tom. I was embedded when they won the national championship with uh, Mateen Cleese. And um, I think it was 2000, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I was working for Sports Illustrated and knew that I had had this place. But like you're just assigned to the Spartans, I followed them all the way through. The night before their championship game against Florida, I stayed up all night with him and his staff and watched them break down tape. And um, you know, I've had countless examples of you know something happened. I'm talking to these coaches. Why did you do that? Why did you do this? What do you think about this? How come you didn't do this? Mm-hmm. And so over all that time, I think you accumulate enough knowledge. That you can, you know, prepare for a game, watch the team's practice, watch video, crunch the numbers, talk to everybody, talk to the coaches, sit courtside, and, and teach the, the viewer something that, you know, he might not have, have known otherwise. It's just, it, it, it really just comes down to time, work, and shoe leather.
1: And absolutely, it's a great point, especially because like people ask me all the time, like what books would be good to to read to improve as a coach. And, and like when I start to reflect on it, I mean, I certainly devoured as many books as I could. But you know, I always think about where I've learned the most, and it does seem like it's been when I'm in, hanging around the coaches, observing, and just sort of being in the space and watching and picking it up. It just seems like that ends up being the best way to do it. Um, you know, rather than trying, you know, study it out of, a, out of a book or maybe a video.
0: Yeah, could, you know, could be could could be either one, you know, and and of course at the end of the day, I think I think we tend to overcomplicate things anyway in life. Um, I remember one of the best coaches I've ever been around was a guy named Gary Palladino. He was a high school coach at Notre Dame High School in West Haven, Connecticut. My first job out of Duke, uh, Nick, was with the New Haven Register in Connecticut. So I covered high school sports for a couple of years. He was a great guy. They weren't. I mean, they were a good team. They would be ranked, but they, they weren't like a huge powerhouse program, but he was a beautiful guy and had great passion and great. Um, it was just fun to watch him work. And one time he said to me basketball, cause he was talking about the role of luck. And I think the role of luck in basketball is, 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 is huge. Um, but he would say to me, he said to me one time, I think basketball is 70% talent, 20% coaching and 10% luck. And you know what, Nick, in the, in the, Two plus decades. I've been doing this, I have yet to hear anybody put it any better than that. Think about that. 70% talent, 20% coaching, 10% love. At the end of the day, if your players are better than the other guys' players, you're probably going to win no matter what you do. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I hate to admit it, but that's probably true because, you know, from the coaching standpoint, you never want, you know, you think, oh, there's got to be a chance. We, we, there's a way to do it. But I think what I discovered re- uh, over the years was that if you stick to what you're teaching and you believe in what that is... Then that doesn't doesn't, almost doesn't matter what the outcome is, right? You can you can have to tip your hat to the other team if they can overcome what you want to offer to them, um, as long as you're executing that. And I feel like that actually makes it easier to coach because. It almost takes away some of the, um, you know, uh, the, if you get too too passionate about it or your emotions get too much involved in it, it's harder to kind of be clear-headed and, uh, and calm on that sideline, you know, kind of like a guy we wanted to talk about, you know, John Wooden on the bench, right?
0: Well, you know, it's, again, I think when people talk about coaching and what makes a great coach, I think people almost always focus on the wrong thing. I feel like the first thing they're focusing on is X's and O's. And really, if I could make a list of the top 20 things, especially at the college level, Nick, the top mm-hmm. 20 things that make for a great coach, X's and O's might be 21st. Um, you know, it's, you're, you're, it's how are you building a culture? How are you creating your team? How are you developing players year to year? Are they getting stronger? Are they improving? Are they getting better? Um, you hit it right on the head. There's no correct way to do this. You coach what's best for you. You coach to your personality. You coach to your philosophies, and you coach to what you know. I mean, you look at Jim Beheim; they play 100% zone because he decided 10, 12 years ago, this is what we're going to do. This is all we're going to do, and we're going to do it well. And if it doesn't, if we're not doing it well, I'm not going to switch out of it. I'm going to do it better. And it goes right to his personality because he's a very analytical guy. The zone has a lot of tweaks. Then you have someone like Mike Kucheski, who um, you know is not uh, you know until recently never played zone and and you know still plays very very little zone and they're both equally great it's not it's, it's so it's not as they say it's not the X's and O's it's the Jimmy's and Joe's i will mean, give you another example um, Mike Bray at Notre Dame and the season that they're having he loses guys every year and they're still good why because many years ago he realized, look, we're not going to get the one-and-dones, we're not going to get the big-time guys. He was the first guy to take advantage of the whole transfer thing. He started at Delaware, and he decided, one thing that I can do that these other teams that we're playing can't do is stay old every year. So you bring in transfers, you develop guys, they wait a couple years, and then you know by the time they get their opportunity, they're ready to play. So he's built that culture and, and recruited a certain way and developed relationships and stayed true to himself. And they're winning a ton of games, and it's got nothing to do with how he draws up plays.
1: You know, that is a great point. And let me ask you this, because I asked Luke Walton this last year when I had him on the show for a quick interview, and I looked at the roster that the Warriors had, and especially like in the in the year they won the championship. Almost every player on that team had played at least two years, mostly three and four years in college. And I said... Do you think that's a coincidence that you are playing supreme team ball, very intelligent ball? These guys all get along and are great teammates to each other. Do you think it's a coincidence that they all spent time, extra time in college versus one in Duns What are your thoughts on that?
0: I think it's a great point. I would even take it a step further that the two best guys on that team are sons of great NBA players. So they – were inculcated at a very early age with the understanding of what it takes to be a great player. It's not about showing up on game day. What it means to be a great teammate, the ups and downs, handling the off the court part of it, handling getting traded, handling handling the business, handling handling agents. Um, neither of them were you know hugely recruited out of high school. Neither of them were. I mean, Steph Curry became a you know a great player at Davidson, but remember. He was very lightly recruited coming out of high school, wanted to go to Virginia Tech, and, and they wouldn't even let him, they wouldn't even offer him a scholarship. So, um, and, and I think that, you know, the Warriors have made a conscious decision to create a culture. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't focus so much on the not one and done thing because who's a better player, better teammate, better culture guy than LeBron James? You know, who is better, you know, than, <laughs> than, 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 than Kobe Bryant? Uh, look at Kevin Durant. He, Kevin Durant only played one year in college. Okay.
1: Um,
0: I, I, I interviewed Steve Kerr a um, uh, month and a half ago, maybe a month ago, um, and I asked him, you know, what does what, what we know the upside that Kevin Durant brings? But what's the downside? What's the challenge? He said zero because he's an unbelievable teammate. He's a great human being. So um, I think I think when he, I, I think those decisions are made more on an individual basis versus sort of a a preordained template. But it is a conscious decision that, just because you have some talent doesn't necessarily mean that that you know joining our organization is is good for our organization.
1: Right. I mean, I just feel like um, upperclassmen all too often get penalized simply because they're getting drafted as a junior or a senior. When if I were a GM, like okay, those are the years at the end of his career that you're going to lose because he's older. But uh, I, it, you know, for for a while there, what was interesting was was that the guys getting drafted at the end of the first round were all the seniors who weren't getting picked and the, you know the younger guys were getting picked first well they were going to teams that were already good and they could produce right away making those good teams better than they already needed you know already were so it was kind of this weird cycle I thought for the draft that was actually benefiting the good teams anyway
0: well and again let's go back to my earlier point about luck um, there is a tremendous amount of luck, especially with the draft, and especially when you're drafting young players. I mean, did the Golden State Warriors know when they drafted Steph Curry, he was going to be a future NBA, uh, NBA MVP? Uh, certainly the six or seven teams that drafted ahead of them had no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, did they know that Clay Thompson was going to be this good? Um, you know, and now they're adding, you know, Kevin Durant, and did they know that Draymond, I mean, nobody, I, 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 you know, I thought Draymond Green would be pretty good and, and was mystified that. I, I mean, he went in the second round. Um, again, I alluded to Justin Patton. Here's a kid who might be in the lottery next year. He's, he plays at Creighton. Uh, he's from Omaha. And all these coaches saw him across the country. Nobody offered him. And Greg McDermott offered him. Had him redshirt last year because he was so raw and unprepared to play in college. And they had a 50 year senior guy who was like, convincing the red shirt. And and now he's like a lottery pick. You think Greg McDermott knew that was happening? So you know, I, there's, there, there, there's a lot of luck involved here, but certainly if you have a good culture, good philosophy, um, then you're going to get luckier more than people who, more often than people who don't have those things.
1: Yeah. Now, speaking of luck, you know, I'm kind of curious is there anybody that comes to mind over the course of your career that. Simply by where they got drafted, they did not have a good career in the NBA where you thought for sure they would have had they just been able to get to like a different team, different situation. Have you, can you think of anybody off the top of your head?
0: You know, it's, it's a little harder for me because I am um, not an NBA guy per se. I mean, I'm still pretty amazed that Jim or Fredette can't find a way to play. I mean, I look at like mm-hmm. what Ron Baker's doing with the Knicks. Um, now he's a little bigger, a little you know better defender. But the fact that Timber can't even be in the NBA uh, is pretty surprising to me. I mean, the the one player to me that truly shocked me about how he did not pan out as a pro is Adam Morrison. Uh, now Adam had the issue of being a type one diabetic, which I I always felt like they underplayed at Gonzaga because they didn't want his uh, NBA um, uh, you know uh, draft stock to suffer. Um, but, you know, to me, I mean, he was a guy who was 6'10", 6'9", could put on the floor, could really shoot good athlete, you know, huge, huge balls, you know. Um, but, you know, you do hit on, again, you know, this luck factor. And I've learned a lot about this, Nick, in, by working with, you know, guys like, you know, Steve Smith, Reggie Miller, um, you know, former NBA players, Clark Kellogg. You know, there, there's a pool of players in the NBA who are pretty much going to be successful no matter where they are. And we all know who, who those people are. Um, you know, beyond that, it, be, it really does come down to fit and opportunity. And does the coach really believe in you? And especially like, especially those last four spots on the bench, like those guys aren't there because of, they can con- contribute in games. They're, they're there for other reasons. Is it a, is it a Paul Pierce situation where they help your locker room? Is it, um, you, know, the, 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 you know, he played for, you know, the coach's buddy in college and they're hooking him up. Like, why, why it's the, the guys who are 10 through 12, so that's, what, three that's 90 players in the NBA. Mm-hmm. How many people around the world are good enough to be one of those 90? Probably thousands, certainly hundreds. Yeah. Why, You know, so to me, it, it definitely, there's definitely a lot of luck involved when you're that level of player.
1: Yeah, I mean, I often wanted to go back to our era of when we were growing up. You know, I wonder if Steve Alford – Looked at like Steve Kerr's, um, you know, career and been like, man, you know, if I had gone to not anywhere but Dallas or something, you know, I could have had that. Great career. example, right?
0: Great example. Why, why, why Steve Kerr? I mean, St- Steve Kerr couldn't couldn't get open if if you or I were guarding him, but you know, he 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 just fell into a couple of really good situations. And at the end of the day, like, I mean, the kind of career that he had. You know, you have to say, well, you know, it has to be more. You know, he, he's probably better than we we're all giving him credit for. You know, what he had a certain um, way of thinking in the game and playing the game, and uh, mm-hmm. had had a long career. But yeah, there's certainly a lot of a lot of it is definitely a crapshoot.
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, if you watch Steve Alford play, I mean, he was he was better than Steve Kerr. I mean, you know, and in a similar size, yeah. and you know, so uh, you know, it's it's fascinating when you look at that. You know what I mean?
0: It's a great point. Why? Yeah, I, that, I'd I'd like to ask. I'll ask uh, that question someday. That's a great question for him. There's a certain lot, lot of guys? Can, again, why why, why can't Jimmer be a Steve Kerr somewhere? Right. Yeah. I mean, I that, he can shoot. He can drill. I mean, he can shoot. I think if you can shoot like Jimmer for that somewhere in the NBA, someone's going to want it. you. But it's I guess it's like Tebow. You know, but enough people have, have told Tim Tebow is not good enough to play quarterback that it must be true.
1: Well, you know, I think that they wanted to paint Jimmer into a box, much like a Steve Kerr role. And I think that he gristled or bristled, whatever the word is, bristled against it. Um, And I think that he might have been right. Like, I would have liked to have seen him been unleashed because, you know, like Steph Curry is a good example of a guy who, who played like Jimmer, right? Like that same kind of, you know, off the dribble, you know, deep shots. And right. when he got to the pros, you know, I think Steph also wasn't encouraged as much to do that. And it took him a while to do that. And I almost feel like, you know, I would have liked to have at least seen Jimmer in some situation where they let him be free and let him do it. Uh, I, I, at least just to find out. Like, that's the thing. We've never found out. He's always been, in, you know, stuck in this role where he's just going to have to stand in the corner and wait for the kickout. And that's just not him anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, mean, I think the list is we could probably go through the draft. You know, another thing you know that is, just it. it there, there are so few rookies that really make an impact in the NBA. I mean, how many players in this year's rookie class are having a genuine impact on the NBA? Three, three to five at the most, right? Yeah. Um. I mean, I haven't followed it that close. I don't know that there's a. I mean, I, I mean, you say Joel Embiid, but he's a, he's an unusual case. He's an obvious Rookie of the Year, but but beyond that, who's really I mean, Buddy Heald isn't even playing. Am I right? Uh,
1: well, he, last,
0: uh, he, last I checked, he basically wasn't playing.
1: Oh, well, he was playing. Like, last I checked, he was—he was, you know, doing better actually. But, but you're right. I mean, the point being okay. made is that yeah, it's not huge impact. Like Brandon Ingram hasn't really, you know, made his impact as you know. And again, I'm not sure we had huge hopes for him. I think maybe Malcolm Brogdon is probably the one guy who has been most impressive to me. And guess what? How many years did he play in college?
0: That's right. There you go. For sure, yeah. for sure. Well, th- this, is, this is why, I mean, and he had a, he had a better body of work um, uh, or, or, a lo- or a longer body, you know, bigger body of work, I should say. And, and, and that to me, like, I mean, I haven't studied this, but just instinctively, if I were running an NBA team, I would much rather build my team through trades and free agency than through the draft. Like, I would trade my draft picks for players only because it's, it's a known quantity. Like, I, I would rather know what I'm getting than now, again, maybe, you know, you can take a chance and pass on someone who could pan out and be this great player. But I just think over time, the more you see of a player, the more you're going to know what you're going to get and, and the better decision you're going to make, yay or nay.
1: That's a provocative statement because obviously people want to hoard those picks and use them uh, for the crab shoot that they are. I mean, some some teams, by the way, have, you know, it, it feels like they might have figured it out to some degree. They consistently nailed – some of these picks, but uh, again, I always feel like I, I tend to would err on the guy who's a little bit older, who's a junior or senior, you know, who's been learned a lot more, uh, because this notion that you're going to be able to teach them, you know, the team part of the game during an NBA season seems kind of folly. Maybe you can get them better, all the individual stuff, and they learn all those moves, but to teach them, you know, spacing on defense and the weak side and all those things, like, You know, if they're not going to get that at the college level, it feels like they ain't going to do it over the summers with their trainers. Yeah, and,
0: you know, I I hate to say this, Nick, because I I think it's, you know, players who stay, there's so much pressure. Like, I think a lot of these bad decisions that we see of young players trying to come out, um, you know, the Davis kid last year from Michigan State is is a great example. I think a lot of that, I mean, obviously – It's family financial pressure, like, hey, you got a chance to make some money, go get it. But there's also the idea that you're trying to avoid a stigma, that if you stay more than one or two years, then somehow you fail. I mean, that's that's the sick, uh, you know, thinking that surrounds a lot of these kids. Having said that, we have to be honest and say, you know, if someone is a junior or senior and they're still in college, you know, there's a reason for that. I mean, the truly elite... Truly, you know, the, the, the prodigal, you know, the prodigies um, are, are going to be, you know, freshmen and top wars. And that's just, that's just the way it is. So it's, it's like, that's why go back to the original question about the warriors. I think it has to be individual by individual. Um, you know, you have to dig in deep on, on people's psychological makeup, their family background. But if somebody is truly, truly talented, you know as, and he's only has one year for you to pass on that because no, I like three or four year guys. I'm not sure that's the way to go either, so it's not it's, it's a lot easier for, for, you know to, to sit in our, in our shoes and second guess everybody four or five years down the road than right. just to make those decisions in real time.
1: Fair enough. well, you know as we wrap up, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions, and I thought, you know sure. the, the one thing that bubbles up to me. Is uh, when I'm busy watching the NBA, but this Grayson Allen kicking thing has been, you know, sort of thrown out there on Twitter. And I've, I, if I've noticed it, then it clearly must be a thing. Um, I'm just kind of curious. Uh, what, is, the, what is this it whole is, thing it, about? It is.
0: It is, it is it, well, well, first of all, it is definitely a thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And at, at at the end of the day, what what it's about more than anything uh, is that he's you know he's he plays for Duke number one. Uh, the fact that he's white probably feeds into that sort of history, of the Leighton or JJ Reddick, you know, we hate the Duke guy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, that to me are the main, is the main, are the main drivers, the Duke thing most of all. Um, of, because you see these other examples of players doing things that aren't so good that don't you know, light up Twitter the way he does. I mean, they had this game against Louisville where he was going up against a Louisville player named Donovan Mitchell, and Donovan Mitchell, to his credit, um, obviously had the mindset that he was trying to get under Grayson Allen's skin and try to get him to lose control of his emotions to make him less effective. And, you know, there's one play where, you know, he Mitchell reached for the ball and literally slugged Grayson across the face, I think unintentionally, but then their arms got locked and he pulled Grayson Allen to the ground. And as he got up, he literally slapped him open-handed on the forehead. Um, And it wasn't called at the time. And the headline Uh, on one of the blogs was Grayson Allen gets slapped. (laughs) Not Donovan Mitchell slaps another player. Grayson Allen got slapped. But having said all that, um, Grayson Allen is a great example um, of what I talk about when the importance of players understanding the difference between intensity and emotion. Intensity is good. Emotion is not always good. Um, and he, you know, he only knows how to play a certain way. And that's, you know, balls out. And it's, 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 you know, been, become a problem. And it, and it, it's become a problem because of the scrutiny and it becomes a distraction and everybody's dealing with it. And there's a lot of dysfunction down there right now and Mike Szefsky's out. So, um, you know, my, my advice to Grayson would be if this is how you need to get your emotions to be an effective player, Right now, what you need is to be a less effective player. You need to learn how to get your emotions under control and then build from there because it's not good for anybody. You know, I, I don't think he's a bad kid. I don't think he's a particularly dirty player. Um, you know, all the tripping incidents, if, if you've seen them, they're all kind of different. It was really only, only the one in, um, uh, in December against uh, Elon, the, the really bad one, that was a true kick. Mm-hmm. You know, the others were kind of subtle. Um, and yeah, he's, he's he's a bit of a punk in a good way. People call JJ Redick a punk. You know, would you want to play against JJ Redick or would you rather have him on your team? I mean, the question answers itself. So uh, <laughs> it's been a it's it's been a conversation driver. I can tell you
1: that. Is he going to be a good pro?
0: You know, it's close. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I would say the one thing about Grayson that would get me pause is I don't know that he's a great shooter, and I think at his position as a combo guard, he's going to need to be, you know, a, a 40% plus three point shooter in the NBA. And, um, I don't, I don't, I don't know that he's there right now. So, um, but you know, he's got, he's got some bounce. He's kind of, you know, like a mini Rex Chapman. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's, 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 it's not a, it's not a slam dunk, but I could certainly see it happening.
1: Wow. Well, you know, Rex Chapman's a name we haven't heard in a long time and certainly a guy who who had some bounce uh and who could play in the NBA. So, uh, I make sure it's
0: is, is it, isn't, it, isn't it the rule by the way that you have to compare white guys to white guys and black guys to black I mean in that like I would feel like Yeah. And uh, maybe maybe it's too sensitive, but I, I want to start a, a Twitter hat, hashtag called Cross the Streams where ah. we only compare white guys to black guys and, and and vice versa. Maybe maybe you can get that going. I don't I don't need to commit a career, uh, career suicide. But, <laughs> well, um, we could
1: talk about it. We can see. I mean, you know, you're right. Yeah. It's just, There's a natural proclivity to that. And, um, you know, yeah. I, I don't know what, I don't know how else to get around it at this point. So I, I don't want to fight it. But uh, before we wrap up, I, I thought I'd just ask you a couple of questions because you wrote an awesome book about John Wooden that came out in 2014. And uh, I just had a couple of quick questions because I'm, I'm a big Wooden fan. I mean, to be, to be perfectly honest, I'm a much bigger um, Pete Newell disciple. Um, and as okay. we all remember, you know, Wooden couldn't beat Newell the last uh, eight times they played, or something like that, uh, going into 1960 before he retired. So, <laughs> um, you know, I'm just kind of curious. You wrote it in 2014, but did you ever have a chance to do any work directly with Coach Wooden before he passed away? Uh, yeah, I, I interviewed him uh, several times
0: um, as sort of part of my role with uh, Sports Illustrated. I, I never had any formal interviews. The last interview that I had with him was. Probably eight, nine months before he died, and I, I kind of knew that I wanted to try to write a book uh, about him, but I, I didn't have a contractor publisher, so it wasn't a formal. I, I just went out there to see him because I, you know, with Coach Woodney, never knew when was going to be the last one, and that one turned out to be the last one. So I had three or four opportunities where, I mean, he was so accessible. You know, that's mm-hmm. all he did all day was receive visitors and talk to reporters, and he loved it. He'd go to breakfast with him at his favorite restaurant. He ate there every day ordered the same thing every day, man of habit till the end. And then he'd go back to his den and he'd talk, he'd answer whatever question. And his mind was incredibly sharp and he'd read you poetry. And it was just this really enriching and enlightening and memorable uh, experience. So, so yeah, I, I was able to, you know, take a measure of the man, you know, up close, but of course, you know, because he was so ac- accessible and so articulate and verbose, you know, he certainly left a, a, a treasure trove of, uh, you know, interviews and 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 things that he said over the years that allowed me to kind of retrace everything. So it was it was, it was certainly special memories for for me to, to to spend that kind of time with him.
1: Well, I, I wanted to share a funny story with you about that because I was coaching at a high school down the road from Froman's where he would eat lunch almost every day, and um, right. I, we, we would go in there maybe once a month for about I don't know two and a half or three straight years looking for him. And he, you know, coach wouldn't, you know, you just miss him or he's not here today or whatever. And I, fi- I swear to God, it was literally like years. And finally, one day we walk in and, and there he is, he's, he's sitting down eating and we ended up approaching him and he gave me his card and I got a chance to, to speak to him just there. And, uh, just, you know, I think that, that kind of is also a testament to like what, what he stood for because, you know, here's a guy, a young. Uh, this is in 2000, but I was willing to. You know, I kept going in there every month, hoping to find him. And it was just, it was just so exciting to be able to talk to him for a brief moment. The funny thing was, is he called me back later to say I asked him if I can come over and, and you know just talk about the history of the game, and he said, well, how about now? And I was on my way to a game to coach a summer league game, and I was so stupid because I what I don't think I understood then was if he says how about now. Then you go to his house then, <laughs> right and, and I, right. I, I thought he'd get a kick out of it, but I was never able to kind of hook up with him again later. Probably my biggest lament of my basketball uh, career was that I couldn't make that happen, but um, I'm glad that we can relive it a little bit with your book:
0: Yeah, well, it was you know it was very interesting, and uh, of course, a lot of work. I spent you know four years researching the book, but you know go back in time and through all the primary source material and, and retrace his life and as I tell people you. Know, if, you're gonna you're gonna write a book. You better enjoy your subject because you're gonna be spending a lot of time with them.
1: Was there anything that like as you're digging through it? Because like so many of the stories are, we we all know pretty well. But was there anything that was like a real surprise to you as you went through the research? Well, you know, there were there were
0: a couple of things. I mean, uh, you know, I, it's like the saying: as we get older, our stories get better. Um, I, I read a quote recently. Someone said, you know, you know. You know, Dan, 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 the eyewitness, he always ruins a good story. So, you know, Wooden told a couple of yarns, you know, one of them, uh, maybe the most stark to me was the story that he always told about how he came to the decision to retire. You know, he always told the story that, you know, they, he had just beaten Louisville, um, in the final four and Denny Crum was his protege and it was this overtime game, really emotional. And as he walked off the court, he felt like he didn't want to go and talk to the press, and he thought to himself, well, if I feel this way, it must be time to get out. So he decides on the spot to um, retire and goes in the press room and announces it. And my wife was shocked. My AD spent the night, you know, talking me out of him. He told the story a lot. It was a total lie. <laughs> he knew before the start of the season um, that he was going to retire. He told his AD, J.D. Morgan. J.D. Morgan had interviewed uh, Gene Bartow secretly. Bartow was the coach of Illinois and had his replacement ready. Um, the only thing that happened was the, the story started to get out. Actually, George Raveling um, at the time was at, uh, I guess, Washington State and writing a newspaper column, and Gene Bartow told him that this was going on, and Raveling uh, reported it first in his newspaper column and it kind of started rolling at the final four, and I think Wooden was tired of, of lying about it. But that was just a complete made-up story. Um, and then the other one that I, that I discovered on my own self, which was interesting is, you know, he always told the story about when he was at Indiana state, he had an African American player who, um, and, and they were invited to play in the, um, what became the NAIA uh, national tournament. And, you know, there was a rule that there were no blacks allowed in the tournament and, you know, Wooden always told the story that he told them that he, he would refuse to go unless they would let him take his black player and that because he did that, they changed the rule and he took it and, and this, this young man became, you know, kind of a footnote in history as the first uh, black player. Well, I went back and that was actually completely not true. Wooden actually agreed um, to play in, in the tournament had informed this player that he was not going to be coming. And Borden, by the way, was incredibly impressive and progressive for a guy who came out of 1920, 1930, Indiana, the height of the Ku Klux Klan, was very, very... Um, you know, admirable in terms of his personal views uh, about race and segregation, but he was, he did not take that stand that, that the tournament overturned that rule because some schools in the Northeast uh, made us think about it and they got the U.S. Olympic Committee involved and that's how it got overturned. So his, Wooden was, was, was very admirable in a lot of respects, but his behavior in that particular instance was not nearly as noble as he described.
1: Aha! Well, you know, not everyone is always as saintly as the, they may be appear to be, but certainly he earned uh, he right. earned all the credit he deserves. And so do you for a writing the book in uh, a Coach's Life," and then also for coming on the show and giving me extra time today. I really appreciate it. This has been really great. And uh, where are we going to see you next? You're going to be on TV anytime soon.
0: Uh, I'm on CBS all weekend, and then I got um, uh, I got a couple of Big Ten Network games next week and i do cbs sports network on thursday nights and saturday nights so um if, you, if, you, if you're not seeing me then you're not watching and god bless you <laughs> all
1: right well <laughs> we will definitely see you uh good luck to my alma mater wisconsin when you're over there covering right. their game uh, oh great and don't forget sports fans at b-ball breakdown not a channel we're a conversation you win are you in seth i, I, I i'm what? yeah absolutely. i'm in mean, of course